God is good. All the time. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of Galatians. Today we're going to continue our study going verse by verse through this book. We're going to begin in the third chapter. Galatians chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. May we hear it and receive it as such. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Holy Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Holy Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we're gathered here this morning, we delight in being here. We delight in being with one another. We delight in being in your very presence. Singing songs to you, offering our prayers to you, remembering you in the midst of hurried and busied lives, remembering you trusting you, celebrating you. So we ask, O oh Lord, that you would come and meet with us, that you would give of your spirit to us, that his holy and, and amazing work would be done in us, and yes, Lord, through us, to your glory, to your fame, to our benefit and transformation. We ask all this and more in Jesus' name, and all God's people agree. Amen. It can feel startling when you transition from chapter 2 to chapter 3. So let me remind us a tiny bit about where we've been, because we are experiencing today a massive transition in Paul's letter. In the first section, up until now, we've seen Paul try to establish his independent apostolic ministry apart from the apostles of Jerusalem. We've seen that. He's done an excellent job. Paul is an apostle, not because Peter or James say he is or say he isn't but because Christ has called him. And upon that alone, he rests his apostolic calling. We've also seen that after establishing his apostolic independence, he proceeds to give the very heart of the gospel. That's why we've spent so many weeks going through so few verses because we must understand the simplicity of the gospel and reject 
all efforts to complicate what God has made simple. Does not mean that there isn't nuance. It does not mean that there isn't a myriad of things I've wanted to say and not had time for. There really is a cutting room floor in my preparation, despite what some might argue. But listen to the abrupt nature. As Paul has talked about his authority to explain the gospel and then given the gospel, it turns on a dime. We are leaving this scene from Antioch, so dramatic, where Paul and Peter seem to be at odds with one another, despite years of friendship, though friendship at a distance. We don't know how the scene in Antioch ends from this epistle. Paul is so sure that he's developed the point of that scene that he just walks away from it. Listen, listen to how abrupt this is. Verse 20 of chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Oh, foolish Galatians. What? Well, how did that thing with Peter turn out? We know how the thing with Peter turned out. And more than that, they would know how that thing with Peter turned out because it happened before Paul's missionary journeys. So they would have gotten days and hours of information more than we have. But just for our purposes, let me sum up. There is nowhere in the New Testament where you see Paul do anything other than celebrate the common partnership they share in the gospel. Check out 1 Corinthians if you want. 1511 is probably the easiest single marker. And then flip the script and go study the letters of Peter, and you will see Peter call Paul's writings Holy Scripture, Holy Writ. There is no beef between them apart from Peter's sinful withdrawal from table fellowship with Gentiles. The reconciliation of that assumed once the gospel of grace is not just assumed, but agreed on by these brothers. And you can see that play out in the rest of Acts. If you want to jump into Acts 15, you'll be neck deep in Peter and Paul on the same page explaining the history and truth of the gospel and the church as one in council agreeing to the gospel that Paul is proclaiming here to the Galatians. Don't put a rift between Peter and Paul. It does not belong. So this Antioch scene comes to an abrupt close but the scene's question remains. This is the question that reveals the problem that Paul is addressing in this letter. 
How does a righteous God accept unrighteous people not only into his presence, but receives them in eternal worship in his presence? Paul is dealing, as we remember, with the question of human merit. Human merit as opposed to divine grace in our doctrine of salvation. Is human goodness in any form, inward forms, outward forms, active forms, is human goodness sufficient to make a man right with God? And our answer is no. It need not be a soft no. It should be a hard no. It should be a by no means. Without question, the answer is no. So Paul is going to take them, having established the origin of saving faith, in faith, in Christ, both alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, meaning faith without help, in Christ and no other. He's going to move from that alpha point of faith through the Christian life towards the end of life. In other words, is the Christian life from faith, through faith, to faith, and then sight? Right? Isn't that the great hope of heaven when faith becomes sight? When you will see with new eyes that which you have known in your soul. Faith becoming sight. Well, sight will play a large role in this passage. So, in order to emotionally prepare us to go on this journey, I want to ask you a personal question that you should not answer out loud. This is a silent question. Are you ready? What is the most beautiful sight your eyes have beheld? What is the most beautiful sight your eyes have beheld? Husbands earn brownie points when they look and wink at their wife. Children can settle in their hearts a Christmas morning as the wrapping paper unfolds the things so long wanted and waited for. And yet somehow the question of beauty drives us beyond quick moments, doesn't it? If we ask, what is beautiful? What is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? We tend as humans to move towards an enveloping awe of created things, created order. Now that might mean a sunrise or a sunset or a, a storm's electric power or the vibrancy of a wave in the ocean. 
It might make you stand in awe of things that overwhelm you to a core you might not have known you've had. It could move you in the presence of a really, really master work. I remember the first time I was taken to the Boston Museum of Fine Arts and I saw a Monet. It was a drifting exhibit that went from city to city to city, probably around the world. But I was old enough, finally I imagine, to have my interest piqued in what we were going to be looking at. I liked the Impressionist paintings because I thought, I can do that. (laughs) The lines aren't firm and I don't have to stay within those lines. You can sort of throw it here and throw it there and, and it's the combination of how the whole thing fits together. That's the real, this thing's worth millions of dollars? Question mark? And then I saw my favorite Monet. And I don't have time this morning to explain to you all the beauties I saw and the nooks and the crannies and the shades and all of the elements that drew me in and captivate me still. You've heard it said, a picture is worth a thousand words. I wonder how many words you will give me to describe it for you someday. In fact, that's kind of what a preacher's job is. To be given words in allocation to express to you the beauties of Christ. As great as Monet was and as masterful as those non-chaotic lines and paintbrushes strokes were, how much greater The gospel. The gospel is not about what you do for God. It's about what God has done for us. Is it sufficient, man's goodness, to make us right with God? No. Is it sufficient to keep us right with God? No. We have seen and agreed that the law cannot promise life. It merely threatens death. The death that Christ suffered. And so we will believe the law's testimony about itself, that there's no life to be found in our obedience, but rather the law perfectly obligates and perfectly portrays Christ and his obedience to it shouldn't be surprising since it's his, his given, his received, his completed. Why would we look to the law when Everything it can give, Christ has received. And yet I think all of us can agree that there are subtle ways or large even at times 
significant ways, perhaps, that we seek to supplement human merit as a pinch upon the grace of God. I often wonder if the two are not reversed. We add a pinch of God's grace to our, wow, crazy holy, no, never, obedience, activity, desire. Do we seek to supplement God's grace with our merit or our merit with God's grace? You need not wrestle that question to death. It's a fool's errand. You have human merit, as the unwashed masses know, and trust, or you have God's grace, full stop. That's the gospel. So, since merit and grace cannot be combined, as we've seen Paul develop in the previous chapter, then the invitation or command of the Judaizers coming from Jerusalem is a demand to turn their back upon the grace of God, turn their back on the cross of Christ. How could it be possible to turn your back on so great a gift? How could it be that you stop being excited about the only truly excite-worthy thing in all of creation? The danger here is not only that they would view the cross of Christ as empty or sacrificed in vain as we can close and conclude in the close of verse 21 Christ died for no purpose Christ died in vain well if he does not die in vain in justification will he die in vain in sanctification no This is the reason Paul pushes the question of Galatia being foolish. The churches filled with believers acting foolishly. Now, if we're honest, we cannot exclude ourselves from that claim. Oh, foolish by Gracians. Yes? but not in this doctrinal matter. Not when it comes to justification and sanctification and even adoption. Does our merit produce our adoption? It's silly, right? Can you imagine an adopted kid saying, well, aren't you glad I picked you guys? Aren't you glad I paid the money and sacrificed the sacrifice and did all the visits and all the licenses and all of the, could you imagine little Caleb looking at big old Wendy and saying to her, I think you're glad I picked you. It's ridiculous, right? 
The little kid saying, I'm so glad I suffered for you. Instead of the other way around at times. Oh foolish Galatians. It is fool hardy. Fool-ish. To think you can take the beauty of a Monet and add your strokes upon it. Could you imagine a little kid grabbing his finger paints going, I don't like the blue. (laughs) And thinking that the adding of blue where red was at the tip of the master's brush improved the painting. Can you imagine? I'm not even talking about money and the financial implications or insurance checks that would need to be cashed. Can you imagine the idea itself that a child's handprint increases the value of what was made? We do that every time we seek to sprinkle us in any form upon Christ in any form. We've begun a glorious beginning by faith in Christ. It is by that glorious beginning that we receive a merciful middle that culminates in a triumphant end. Paul is unbelievably astonished. Not that faith wanes. He knows that. He's experienced it. He knows that faith wanes, but that the trust, when rightly put to you, covers you, yields nothing to you. You remember and agree. Paul asks the question of the fool who would add his own handprint upon the canvas of Christ. Who bewitched you? Who tricked you is not strong enough. Maybe we should translate this, who put a hex on you? Remember the witchcraft of their day and ours, as if there's no more witchcraft in the world. There's no, mono, no more demonic presentation, incantation. No, no. Spiritual war is real and will be until he returns. If you're not familiar with this language, you've probably seen it depicted in movies. Imagine me dropping a watch, pocket watch, and then slowly rocking it back and forth as I speak to you in a calm, tender voice. What am I doing? I'm hypnotizing you. If you've ever seen a modern-day hypnotist, it's crazy. You watch people do things they really wouldn't do in their right mind, but doesn't completely disagree with their nature, and there's all this you could learn or study about it, I still have some suspicion, if I'm honest. But that's essentially the question. 
Who dropped a stopwatch before your eyes and tricked you into gazing at it? Who grabbed control of your sight and put a message in your ear that would tempt you to walk away from everyone and everything you hold most dear? It would be quite a spell, wouldn't it? I want to be clear with us this morning. Putting a spell on a Christian is the goal of every demon. Putting a hex that arrests your eyes, removes your treasure, and casts it upon filth, is the goal of every demon. In fact, there are only two reasons that someone should ever be accused like this. Who hexed you? Who put a spell on you? Who was the great incantator? The ignorance of human flesh or the dominion of hell. Only two sources. Only two. You foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Who put a spell on you? Who cast your gaze upon a useless object in order to arrest from you all you hold dear? What's the contrast given? What's the antidote to the spell? Paul says at the end of verse 1, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly seen, publicly portrayed as crucified. (laughs) Picking on the valets today, apparently. If you don't know Brent, Brent got a degree from Emerson in Boston. I know it's near and dear to y'all's heart. In public relations. He studied in college marketing. What was marketing in ancient Rome's day? It's actually the same in ours. Billboards. You ever driven down the highway and actually read all the billboards? It tells me how old you are, if you say yes. Or at least establishes a minimum. When Paul writes this letter, he's saying Christ crucified is on the placard, the billboard. The billboard is Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. Look at the sign. What does the sign say? What does the sign show? My brother does usability consulting around the world and fights to help those uh, make better use or ease of use with products. He also does it to help, you know, what does a blind person get to do in a museum of fine arts? So he helps museums and others put audio recordings in or put, you know, simulated sculptures and things like that so that There's something there for them to enjoy, to engage, to study. 
But one of my favorite things is my brother in this job travels around the world. And when he travels around the world, he loves to take pictures of signs from other places all over the world. And sometimes they're ironic. Sometimes he puts a cartoon caption to it. One of my favorites was a picture of a baby in a car seat, what looked like thrown from the car off a bridge. And we have no idea what that sign is supposed to explain. But apparently in their culture, everybody gets it. I want to know what the joke is. My heart skips a beat every time he's like, hey, do you remember? And I'm like, oh, oh, all right, all right. Sometimes he sees wordplay in translation because they try and put English signs in cultures that don't normally speak English natively. And so they say all kinds of things, most of which I can't tell you about right now. But here's my point. Paul's saying... You foolish Galatians who put a spell on you, you studied the sign. And unlike babies thrown off of bridges at high speed, you know what it means. So what you're doing, what you're thinking, what you're loving, It's no longer in agreement with that. So yes, Jesus Christ was publicly crucified. Paul would never refute that idea. He affirms it. But Jesus Christ being publicly crucified is the story of missional preaching. It's the story of evangelism. What do you want for your neighbor? Morality or Christ? Then why do you speak of morality more than Christ? Do you want value? Do you want political outcome? Why is it easier in some circles to talk about everything but raise the placard? Whose name do you want heralded? Yours or Christ's? The Lord's Prayer answers that decision for us pretty quickly, yes? Our Father, who resides in heaven, yeah, it's not hallowed, it's hallowed. His name heralded, made famous, noteworthy. So when you think about the discouragements not only of your evangelistic efforts perhaps, but maybe of your own Wednesday. Look to Christ. That's the contrast given here. It was before your eyes. You have beheld what a glorious beginning. You have publicly portrayed the public crucifixion of Christ before your eyes. How many words do you think the Lord gives you to describe the portrait of his death? Aren't they more plenteous than you make use of regularly? 
you have more words to use, my brothers and sisters. So Paul asks, let me ask you only this. Another translation of this is I have only one question for you that comes in four questions. <laughs> I appreciate the passion of what's happening here. It's exclamative rhetoric. All right, let me ask you only this. I got one thing. Here's my one thing. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing by faith? Are you so foolish having begun by his spirit? Are you now trying? You see it? You should read that. How many times have I told you to read slower? I now give you permission to pull the speed limit of your brain off of this text and hear the crash of every wave upon the sand of your heart saying, Christ, Christ, Christ. The answer to these questions are not, let me think about it. They're not, well, what can I study about that? Let me ask you only this. This is a question you would ask a believer. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? I told you it was rhetorical and then I grabbed my ear. That's not fair. I understand. It was by faith that you were saved, yes? So if you begin, and this letter is assuming they have begun, then the question is, how do you continue? In the same way, it's speaking to pattern. If you began this way, receiving the third member of the Trinity... We've talked about Christ on display. This tells us a lot about the Holy Spirit on display. My one question, did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Saving faith. Are you so foolish, back to fools, having begun by the Holy Spirit, alpha point of salvation, are you now being perfected? By the flesh? It was from the flesh you needed rescuing. Why would you go bad to the taskmaster? Why would you go back to the bad taskmaster from which you were liberated? Are these guys really as dumb as Israel was three weeks after walking through the Red Sea? Can we go back to Egypt? Yes. Yeah, they're that foolish. Just y'all, not me. As long as... <laughs> Having begun by the Holy Spirit, are you being perfected by your sinful nature? It is your sinful nature that every non-Christian around the world trusts. Their hope is themselves. Their God is themselves. It's a treacherous tyranny of self. But you are set free from that. 
freed by Christ who takes your death, are you so foolish, having begun by the Holy Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He's still on the same question. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? I got I to give you a textual insight. Most English-speaking commentaries don't like the word suffer here. Because it implies a persecution from outside the church that is negative. And is that certainly true of the New Testament church? The church of the first century persecuted? Yes, 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 yes. But it would be the only place in this letter where Paul's on that topic. And it kind of comes from nowhere and then resolves nowhere. The other way we can understand this word suffer in our modern usage would be the word experience. Have you experienced so many things in vain if it was in vain? In other words, the Holy Spirit has been at work. And if they've begun by the Spirit, then they've seen the fruits, shout out to chapter 5, of that Spirit. The fruit being formed and fashioned and falling and growing and breeding and raising up orchards among them. So then the in vain becomes Judaizers? You've already experienced the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You're going to go back to empty human ritual? You're going to look to the flesh? You've seen miracles. You've seen the dead rise. You've seen healings take place. Blindness removed, crippledness extracted. You've seen prisoner go free. This is a church in the apostolic age. In fact, if you study the Bible, the miracles themselves are actually contained in very small units of time. We spend a lot of ink on it. But if you look at sort of the age of man, you will see very small pockets of ministerial miracle. And they're always accompanying a moment that is required to authenticate the messenger. In fact, they are always about authenticating the messenger who is unfolding this story of redemption piece by piece by piece. Why could Moses do miracle? Because God was at work doing miracles through Moses to gain what? Trust that Moses is the one that God has called. Is that not true of Elijah? Not true of military victory in the Old Testament? David is awesome, but David's God is a lot awesomer. 
And his deliverances don't only come from the might of his own sword or the strategy of his time in council. We spent a minute on that as a church. I think suffer here is fine if we are willing to use it in a neutral sense. Meaning receive. We don't use it that way anymore. If I were to say to you, hey, that lottery winner is going to have to suffer being given $3 million, you would go hurt me. But that is the nature of suffer. It's receive. I hope that you suffer faith in any age, persecution or not. Suffer faith. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Holy Spirit, are you now being perfected by your flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Holy Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law? Boo! Or by God-given faith? heard faith that's the question for you today that's the question for me today why is God still at work in me is it because I'm nifty now is it because I'm more obedient than the guy next to me because I'm more passionate than the guy next to me or is it simply his merciful grace being worked in you and through you for the heralding of his name and the benefit of all his people please pick that one does god give you his spirit it's probably the most underrated doctrine in the american church the witness of god not the access to God, but the very witness. If I ask you, where does God live? If you are in union with Christ, point here and, and there, right? Where's Jesus Christ right now? In the very throne room of heaven, pleading his obedience before a father who's thrilled to receive it and give to you the Holy Spirit who will indeed pour out sanctifying mercies because he's the sanctifier. Our triune God fully engaged in our salvation. But the placard is the crucified Christ. Our statement confirms or denies. Our lifestyle confirms or denies. Are you set free from your human nature and its union in the fall of Adam by any other means than Jesus Christ? So why would you go back to what you've been freed from? It's a fool's errand. 
So how do we take our eyes off of the pocket watch? Look to Christ and live. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you and you alone are the God of all glory. We thank you that we are given Christ for our trusting. And so, Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for trusting our own merits. Forgive us for sprinkling grace upon our own fine art, which is no art at all. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would confirm to us the great sign of our salvation, which can be none other than your holy presence. What could we possibly look to that would be greater than you with us? What could we possibly want, O oh Lord, too many things? Forgive us and remove them from us. May we agree and remember and keep our eyes fixed on the truth that there's no such thing as performance-based Christianity. There's Christianity and all shortfall performance. The two are not the same. So Lord, whether we are doubting in this season, discouraged in this season, in the church that's in danger, the brothers and sisters around the world, even in disaster, Lord, we pray one thing for them, that you would enable them by the power and ministry of your spirit, that they would keep their eyes on Christ and not turn to the left or to the right, but that you would lift our chins and that we would behold the greatest and most beautiful of all creations, the salvation secured by Jesus Christ and validated with an empty tomb one Sunday morning so long ago. May we worship in spirit and truth and all God's people agree. <laughs>